Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. We are Knee Deep in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 149, recorded on May the 5th, Revenge of the 5th, 2021. <laughs> you will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Today's headlines are going to be Simon has some idea about data compliance. The Microsoft Business and Applications Summit just concluded, and holy cow, we have some absolutely phenomenal updates from Embass. Microsoft is looking for a new default font. I'm not sure how they lost their old one, but apparently they did. There is something new in Intune, and the <laughs> Q3 earnings of Microsoft has been published. So we have a lot of talk to talk about, but let's start with the data compliance. Yeah, and um, I know that, or I believe that you are thinking, oh, where will this end up? And can I have a nap for a couple of minutes? Can this what? really be fun? <laughs> exactly. You, you are as hot as your microphone currently. Mm -hmm. uh, but data compliance and especially data protection, which uh, we will be talking about now for a couple of minutes, is something that I've found to be intriguing and way more complex than you ever can imagine, and to the extent that technology can't solve it all, and it's important to consider what it can and can't solve. But first and foremost, how do you protect your data? Um, well, it depends. <laughs> so let, let, let's take a very simple thing. The, the things you have in your OneDrive, how do you protect that? I don't. I do not add any extra protection to anything that I have in, in OneDrive since that's my personal OneDrive. Mm -hmm. Mostly because I don't know what I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say, and, and sorry for putting it out there, but would you say that you have any kind of sensitive data in your OneDrive? No, not in my personal OneDrive at all. And I think that that's where we need to start. We need first and foremost to value the data we have. And... In, in practice, that's about classifying the data as well. So looking at data, and, and data can be in any shape or form, we will now mostly be focusing on files, documents, pictures, sound, video, whatever it can be, but a file-based file kind of data, just for simplicity. But all of this that we will be talking about, or most of it, is at least applicable to any kind of data. Even, even your kind of data, like databases and similar, more non-file-based data. But if we start by thinking of, okay, what's valuable? And that can be a number of different things depending on who you are and the organization you work for. And that's also, of course, highly dependent on which country you're in and uh, the, the amount of data as well. So first and foremost, look into what data do you have? What data can be sensitive for various reasons? Something to consider first and foremost, and that's a something I've been now very, very strict on. Do not mix private data and work data. Please do not, because that will prove very, very difficult 
both for you as an individual, but more so for your employer when they get an audit, as an example. Because if you store your personal data in your corporate OneDrive, they are responsible in many cases for that data. What about the other way around? If I'm storing company data in my personal OneDrive for hmm. reasons. Yeah. Then you are likely first violating a an acceptable use policy you're likely violating a some kind of data protection policy your organization may have and that is actually at least in eu considered a data leakage because information have now left the company's boundaries and that is by definition now out of their control Things we don't consider when we, as an example, send ourselves an email to save a document or transfer a document somewhere, or something I work quite a lot with, when we use our private iCloud on our iPhone, where we also store company data, and that company data may then be backed up to your private iCloud. If you leave the company the company can't possibly get that data back and you are able to do whatever you like with that data. So there are a couple of ways you can limit this. So going back to that and really iterating on it, do not mix private and work data. Then you can do that in like that separation can be done in numerous different ways. I'm quite strict with that now. So I have separate computers, separate phones, but you don't have to do that, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But do separate it for the sake of your integrity and for the sake of your employer's integrity and compliance. So when we talk about Microsoft, we can do data classification with uh, Azure PureView and we can do that with uh, Azure uh, Information Protection and apply different kind of tags to our data. That can be done on a file level or a team level or a SharePoint site level, file servers, whatever it may be. So we classify the data. We can do that with any model. Uh, Microsoft have a template one that we can use, which is basically private, public, general, confidential, and highly confidential data. You don't have to apply any kind of protection to that data if you don't want to. You are perfectly capable to do so, but you don't have to. And what those different levels and classifications mean can vary very much between countries. My favorite classification, which is official, I think it's the NATO one, which is cosmic secret or something like that. Need to look that up, but that's the highest possible classification that I think a NATO country in wartime uh, can apply to any kind of data. And uh, I don't think there are too many of those. But it's essential also to remember that you shouldn't classify data either too high or too low, and that you are able to change the classification of data depending on what it's valued to. So as an example, we, we both have an old uh, customer of ours which had data that could go from being strictly confidential or highly confidential to being public in a matter of seconds. And to leave that kind of data as highly confidential would have meant a serious violation to Swedish law. So therefore, they needed to reclassify the data on the fly when a certain thing happened, which was quite interesting. 
But the same thing, of, of course, applies to documents. If I'm writing a document where we are have, have the intention of purchasing another company, that's only classified until we purchase the company. If the data and the information is still relevant and isn't disclosing anything that is of sensitive nature for that acquisition. But what you will end up with if you also classify too high or too low is that the protection, of course, should be in accordance to that. And um, I think we also, we will get back to that in just a few minutes, but it can be harder to realize how many ways data can be tampered with, stolen, or destroyed in. So we need to really think that through, and we will do a, a small exercise in a minute or so. So be prepared, Alexander. I am prepared. Yeah. Uh, but we can be compliant for a variety of reasons. Of course, for the protection of the data as such. We don't we, we can have data that's just to ensure the integrity of the owner or the subject of that data. We can be compliant and work with data compliance for the sake of being compliant, which is basically if we have uh, if we are an organization that needs to adhere to a certain regulation, then we need to show that we are compliant and show how we can protect data. And of course, it, it can be for the sake of or the organization as well. If we can't protect data, there is a high risk if data is, for whatever reason, exfiltrated or leaked, that that impacts the organization in a negative way, just because we lost some kind of data one way or another. It doesn't even have to be sensitive information. It's enough that, okay, this data ended up somewhere it shouldn't have been. We can't trust that an organization now keeps our data secure. So there are a couple of reasons to do so. But then to go back to how complex this is, just, just out of the top of your head, if you would like to take a file, let's for the sake of, of this discussion and for the sake of ease of understanding, say you have a Word document on your corporate laptop and you want that document to end up somewhere else. What options do you have? Whoa, that's a lot of options. I can email it, I can FTP it, I can put it on a USB stick. We can probably talk for days about the, the many ways that I can exfiltrate that data. Yeah, and I think there is a, like you can divide it up into bigger groups and I think we have 14 or so different ways of moving data from one place to another. And that can of course be a variety of reasons. So let's say that, yeah, you, I want to put this on another cloud service. There are a few cloud services I've heard. So we need one way or another to protect against all or many of these dependent on the uh, classification of the data. And the classification is key. Before you try to do anything else, let's start with the classification of data. You need to know what's important to you. Next step is to figure out which are the most likely ways that this data may leave our organization for good or bad reasons, by mistake or by a threat actor or someone that's that's infiltrated your company or espionage even. And we, we can talk about that for days and I hope to be able to dig deeper into that at some other point, but we have previously in, in the podcast talked about things like endpoint DLP and such. 
But in my view, you should start very simple. And you should even start earlier than just the data protection. First, protect the identities of your employees. Because that identity is what gives you access to the data in the first place. In most cases, you in, in even if you don't, the only other way of doing so would be to go into the a data center and steal a hard drive or something like that, or steal a laptop and remove the hard drive. Then you don't need the um, the password or credentials of that user in, in some cases. But protect the identities so that you know that okay, we can assume that the people that should have appropriate access do so. That's the other aspect as well. Of course, always work with who should have access internally even, first and foremost, which is something we are quite bad at. Uh, I know that both you and me knows or knows about organizations that use the um, option of everyone with this link can read and write to OneDrive or Teams. But what happens when you do that is that you basically set everyone read right and that's not everyone within your company that's everyone and that's not really appropriate so protect identities set uh, data access accordingly and then do the basic stuff to ensure that you can say yeah we at least did the basic stuff encrypt your storage devices in my opinion encrypt all storage devices USB keys, um, memory cards, disks, whatever you have that stores data that can or is of sensitive nature. And then start to look into the risks of the data and the likelihood of something happening. I've been working with an organization now for, for a while in doing a sort of full DLP project, so data loss prevention project with Microsoft 365. We have focused on really two different kinds of data, only two, only on one platform, and with a fairly simplistic approach. And that alone took us close to two weeks to achieve to a fairly good extent. And that's usually what you need to expect when you're done with data classification, which in many cases can take years for an organization. It's about to start and then you need to be really good at imagining how likely is the data to be exfiltrated in this way and how can we at best protect that. So I would likely get back to a few of these different tools over time. Uh, and dig deeper into how you can protect email, how you can protect, uh, like we said, other cloud services from from getting your possibly sensitive data, and also the aspect of how can we protect ourselves against a threat actor that starts to exfiltrate data? How can we discover that? And how can we protect us against that? Because looking at the way of the world today, ransomware is now getting old and, and close to anyone can uh, set off a ransomware attack on an organization and people are happy to pay for that. But now the threat actors are moving into data exfiltration and uh, extortion instead because they realize that it's simpler and that organizations are willing to pay higher ransoms than they would for you just destroying the data. 
So we'll get back to that, but start now to classify your data, realize the value of that data, protect the basics, your identities, and your storage locations, and then be creative and value the risk, value the options that an attacker would have, and also value the options of unintentional data leakage, like we spoke about earlier, where, again, I highly recommend that you have some kind of approach on separating your corporate and private data. Any questions? Well, not, not so much a question as, as I, I completely agree. And uh, you might not, well, you, maybe you just came into the IT field when everyone was talking about service catalogs. Were you were you a part of the IT? Were you working when the whole service catalog, everybody should have a service catalog nonsense came about? <laughs> nonsense? I think that's essential. Yeah. Going back to it our is. previous. It is. Yeah. But that that's also the thing. Because everybody and their cat wanted to have a service catalog because that's the only way to be hip. The problem was nobody wanted to do the work that is involved in actually figuring out what kind of services are we offering. Mm -hmm. And here we are seeing the exact same thing. Yeah. It's the same darn, I don't want to do the work. And that's why we have these automated systems that help us to classify and, and protect mm -hmm. our data. But as you said in the beginning, this is only partially a technical issue. And since yeah. it is a human issue at, at the get-go, there is no tech in the world that's going to help you solve all the problems. No, and I think that's very important to remember that I've, I've been faced with, we can't lock this down, even if it's a risk for data exfiltration, because if we lock this down, our users will just find new ways around it. And that may be true, but then be very certain to inform your users that, okay, we understand that you don't like this. We understand that you will likely try to find new ways to achieve your goal. Be aware that you're violating an acceptable use policy that you have signed, and that may give you precautions if you violate it. We are happy to work with you to understand your challenge and how we can solve that while maintaining control of our data. And I think that will be more and more essential moving forward. And it also goes back to the, especially in Sweden now, huge discussion around should we use American cloud services or not? And where we have very different ways to view, view that, but where I absolutely claim that, yes, we can use that for some kinds of data, but no, we shouldn't store drawings of our secret military bases or the latest drawings of our fighter jets in any cloud service that it's non-Swedish based. But also consider that it should also be a very secure way of storing that, even if it is in Sweden. Sure. Totally agree on that one. So speaking about data, stuff has happened. Yeah. And so th this has been an interesting uh, couple of updates from MBAS because I kind of thought that when Microsoft showed the uh, the second generation, if you will, of uh, composite models where you can combine direct query on a data set and 
uh, a normal imported uh, data model and data set. It, it just blew my mind, and it was touted, rightly so, as probably the biggest change in, in BI history for well, almost for the entire time that it's been there. And then they uh, drop the bomb, or it's it's not so much a bomb; it's more like a carpet bomb, because the the hits just kept on coming. So they started uh, with automated insights, which is it's it's always going to be there. The service is automatically going to look at your data, look at your your um, visuals, and it's going to do some nifty math behind the scenes, and it is going to tell you that. Um, I found an anomaly here. And then it's up to you to figure out is is this a real anomaly or is it not? And it is going to learn from your data. So it's going to be smarter within quotes uh, as you keep going. And since this is just something that will always be there, it is such a huge uh, freebie, if you will, for any business user. Everybody will be able to benefit from automated um, AI insights. That That's kind of neat. Mm -hmm. And then we have the Power Automate um, visual that came into being uh, a while ago. And that means that we can integrate basically any Power Automate flow that we want to inside of Power BI. So if you want to have, um, well, anything that you can think of with Power Automate, one, one of the most demoed ones is the approval flow. Say that mm -hmm. you want to do... Um, give a customer some discounts, then you can just use some data from your report inside of your flow, and it's going to create a, an, an email to a manager where they can just click approve or, or deny. And that, that's just inside of Power BI, but it gets better. I'm just getting started. Then came the thing that was the, the big thing according to to Microsoft and that is goals you can now or you're you're going to be able to connect uh, tracking of goals tracking of, of KPIs and such inside of teams so you can have connections between teams where you're going to have a new artifact that's known as um, I think it was called a goal dashboard or something like that can't exactly remember and it is connected to power bi so you can click and you can go into power bi and power bi as data comes in it will refresh your your um your artifacts inside of teams so that is going to be really useful for tracking well basically anything you want to track um be it revenue be it uh, compliance considering what we were talking about for instance uh just just this may be a very stupid question. Are both the goals and the Power Automate flows connected to the visuals or the data? Is that a very stupid question? No, 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 no. Uh, not at all. Not at all. And it is a great question. And so when it comes to goals, because I know goals, I've, I've seen the demo, then you can click inside of a visual so you can choose a specific data point uh, and i'm pretty sure that you can do the same with power automate so it is not just looking at the base data it is looking at what you have selected at a specific point in time and you can also do a filter inside 
of, of Power BI. Say, for instance, you just want to filter on North American customers, and then you can use that filter uh, for a specific uh, point, data point, and add that to a goal. Because isn't that quite astonishing if you look at it that I think that some people may say, yeah, but it's it's just pie charts and, and colors and moving bubbles. But the visuals actually mean something. Yes. You can draw the same conclusions based on only the data. You can get a number saying something. But the visuals make it so much more approachable and it actually have a value other than just being colorful pie charts. Oh, absolutely. The human mind is not good at finding any patterns in in text. It is very good at finding patterns, discerning patterns in in visuals. So they're they're visual for a reason. So so the the goals thing, that was the big thing. And I'm I'm pretty sure that it's going to be huge. For me, it was a pretty nifty feature, but it was eclipsed by what I'm about to tell you. So we got the real-time, um, no, it's not called real-time, it's called uh, streaming datasets. We got that a long time ago. And it's not very good at all. It is extremely limited. So you can stream into a report, you just stream data into a dashboard, which means that you're, um, well, you, you can interact with it in a very, in a very good way at all. But we are going to see streaming data flows Streaming data flows is going to leverage um, parts of Azure that's already in there, stream analytics, for instance. So you will be able to take your streaming data set, say it may be telemetry from, from an IoT system. Then you add things to it like, we're going to be grouping in 10-minute windows. So that's a 10-minute tumbling window. And then you're going to just send that data into uh, Power BI. And you can use that because it's going to turn into a data flow. You can use that as a data source like anything else. You can combine it with any data sources you have. And as you change the data, it is going to automatically update the visual in the report. That is huge. Because Mm -hmm. what I see for this is that suddenly you can really use uh, a mobile device, for instance. Say that you're a building maintenance manager. You can look at your somewhat more static data, the, the kind of data that you see today, and you can combine this with IoT data from sensors inside the building. That mm-hmm. is just, that blew my mind. And I am going to dive deep into this as soon as I possibly can, because I think it is absolutely fantastic. Because isn't that going back to also, do you remember the build announcement a couple of years ago where you had the 3D visual using HoloLens and Power BI of a um, air duct shaft where it was overheating and you couldn't realize why it was overheating until you saw the visual and you could see the time when it stopped when it started. So I think that's that's what everyone wants out of data and I think that combined with goals and Power Automate will also be really, really cool. Definitely. And then we have the Data in Space feature. Data in Space is a, a project being done out of Israel, Microsoft Israel. And it is basically taking the HoloLens functionality and putting it into your phone or your tablet. And basically anything that can do augmented reality. And again, go back to the building manager. 
they're walking through their building and they come to the, the elevators. And how about they just take their phone and swivel it up and look at this virtual information board that is on on the um, the elevator. Nobody else can see this data, but they can because they have their AR devices and they have the privileges to see this data. Just think of the opportunities and, and the ideas that we can make of this when we have more ubiquitous uh, AR glasses. It, it's going to mm -hmm. come in a year or two, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So th those are fantastic ideas, especially for me that do a lot of work in the, uh, the uh, real estate sector. Mm -hmm. And then if that was not enough, it keeps going. <laughs> The paginated reports will become a visual. So you can now put a paginated report, which is also known as a pixel-perfect report, the, the kind of thing that you generally print. You can put that inside of a visual on, uh, on, on your, your um, canvas. That is not available now. It is going to come later. That was just a very, very quick thing that uh, Amir Netz um, talked about. And then we have automatic aggregations. You were in Stockholm when I channeled my inner Christian Wade and did the uh, Trillion Row demo on on um, taxi taxi fares in New York. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing that was demoed there was that you can pre-aggregate these trillion rows to something much more digestible, and then you do most of your analysis on the the um, uh, this this data that was. Uh, that was um, aggregated, right? The mm -hmm. thing with that is, it works fine. It works beautifully, but you need to figure out how to make it yourself because the, the tools are there, but you need to take some steps in order for it to work. Well, with automatic aggregations, not so much. It is going to learn and figure out and help you with this in an automatic way. I haven't seen anything beside the demo, but wow. This will open up so many opportunities for people that basically don't care so much about their data model. They just have a lot of data and they want to do nifty things to it. So that's going to be a great stepping stone, if you will. And that also brings us to hybrid tables. Hybrid tables means that I can have one table. This is partitioning in, in SQL Server and technically it's partitioning inside of Power BI as well. But say you have time data you have telemetry tel, uh, telemetry <laughs> it's a hard word telemetry data from two years and you've you're, you're putting data in as it comes in every day or every week if you will so you have imported a lot of your historical data but before you get the next batch of data wouldn't it be kind of neat if you could do direct query, i.e. real-time access to that data as it comes in. Well, that's what hybrid tables is all about. So you can have, from a conceptual standpoint, just one big table, and you use that table as any table inside of Power BI, but underneath, it's going to have one of the partitions, is the word I'm looking for. One of the partitions is actively doing direct query on the, uh, the live data set. So just opens up so many interesting ideas and, and opportunities. And I had this wild idea that you can turn the whole thing on its head. So instead of having your historical data imported and doing their query on your, your newest data, what if you can do it the other way around? 
Um, and there, there are some very specific use cases around that. But I found out after ha having talked to a, a Microsoft engineer today that yes, it, it could be doable, but due to the way that it is implemented, it's not going to work at least from the first version of this, this thing, but they, they now have an, a new idea to think about. So mm -hmm. this is super cool. And finally, might not sound like much, but we now have a, a new um, or updated navigation feature. We can do so much more with buttons and you can dynamically show reports depending on which user you are logged into as such. And small details, but it has vastly improved the ability for the designer to create a usable and interactive report. So this was a wow i was just blown away cool so it sounds like it was a very valuable conference are there was it only yesterday right yes it was just just one day uh just one day mm -hmm. and the the final thing that i'm going to say about power bi this episode is and th this is an important one so there was a, a blog post written by Let's see, it was Amir Nets, who is the um, technical fellow and one of the designers, original creators of, of Power BI, and he is still the, the technical director, if you will, for Power BI, and uh, jointly with Marco Russo. Marco Russo is one of the, the Italians. And they outline the view on third-party tools. And in essence you need to use third-party tools such as the tabular editor or, or the um, ALM tools or DAX Studio or whatever to do enterprise data modeling and, and enterprise data warehousing with Power BI. That's just the way it is. These tools bring things to the table that is not available inside of the Microsoft tooling as of today. And this is a huge statement from Microsoft they are not just endorsing these tools. They are actively saying, if you need, if you want to do this the right way, you need to use these third-party tools. And we both know how much fun it is to try to get um, uh, acceptance for third-party tools in some uh, uptight organizations. So I'm, I'm curious to see what effect, if any, that statement is going to have on, on companies. But I think that, that I find that quite interesting. And and when you say third-party tools, are you talking about both community tools as well as third-party paid tools? That's a great question. All the tools that I've been talking about, the ALM Toolkit, DAX Studio, and Tabular Editor are all community-based free tools. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some paid tools, some really good paid tools, but none of them as far as I know, do anywhere near of what these tools do. Basically, their their niche uh, is more to towards um, DevOps and and backup and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But for for this, well, no. Yeah, and, and the reason why I'm asking is that yeah, it, it's to me it's obvious that this is the standpoint of Microsoft because they care about their partners. But I think the essential part of this is that Microsoft are endorsing community tools, which is something we also see when we look at uh, the community hub inside of Microsoft Endpoint Manager. 
or where we see that uh, Azure Sentinel have a lot of community content in their official GitHub. So I think that is a very important aspect and that many organizations would benefit highly from using because I also saw a very good blog post today about 10 myths about open source, where one of those things were, yeah, if it's open source and it can also be community, it's therefore bad, non-supported or whatever. And that's simply not true. There are a ton of hugely successful community tools that may not have an official support statement, but it's working and it's free and it's doing something that would cost you a lot of money in many cases or would be impossible if you didn't use it. So, and quoting Boromir here, why not use it? Well, I can point you to a couple of very expensive paid offerings mm -hmm. with crappy or non-existent support. So, no. Agreed. <laughs> yes. Agreed. But speaking of support, what about a new default font? <laughs> and th there's a reason that I said support there because, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Which is the current default font within Office? Do you know? Yeah, um, Calibri. Yeah, and which were the previous one? Times New Roman. Exactly. <laughs> Good. So you know that at least. I think that's more than most people know. Why do I know this? But because I love Times New Roman. You do? I still miss it. I don't. I've never liked, I've never liked Calibri. I no, think it's, I, I much preferred Verdana. But Seagoe is, is my, is one of the, the, the fonts that I use the most. Yeah, Windings. Oh, crap. Yeah, but now it's, it's um, now 10 years ago or so, uh, since Microsoft changed from Times New Roman to Calibri as the default font within Microsoft Office. And now it's time to change again. They like to become a bit more modern, I guess. Sure. And they have now announced the five contenders for the default font. Have you looked at them? Very, very quickly. I noticed that Comic Sans is not among them. <laughs> exactly. And and it's very hard to talk about the fonts in a audio-only podcast. But um, my favorite is Tenorite by Erin McLaughlin and Wei Huang. Sorry for not pronouncing your names correctly. Very sorry about that. But I think that is the one that reminds me most about Times New Roman. Sorry about that as well. But I like the simplicity. I like the aesthetics of that uh, even though i like the name of bierstadt which would have been awesome as a uh, default font uh, we also have skina seaford and grandview and seaford is my runner-up and the only reason why i didn't like seaford were because of the small letter e which looks a lot like a happy internet explorer or happy edge icon, which I simply don't fancy. But do you have a favorite out of the five? I think I need to go with Tenorite as well. Uh, due to mm -hmm. the simplicity and the, the clean outline, I mm -hmm. really do not like Skina. Um, I'll, I'll say that. And Grandview yeah. is cute, but I would be 
I, I would completely lose it if that was to be the default. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So uh, a lot of very high executives at Microsoft and other product groups have posted this and are valuing your feedback. So go in and take a look at them and um, let Microsoft know what you think about them because you may be part of choosing the next default font within Microsoft Office or Microsoft 365 Apps for Enterprise. That's a mouthful. Uh, it sure is. Speaking about mouthful, uh, we have a new service release from Intune, and I will just mention a few of the many new features within that. One of the things that I really would like to emphasize that's been released and which you as an administrator need to be very cautious about is the ability now to track by GPS your Windows 10 devices. So we have had that for iOS devices for a while. If under certain, certain conditions uh, and moving through a certain workflow, you can then lock a device and track it. That's now available for Windows 10. That feature may be tying into some other features that are coming later on. But be very careful from a personal integrity point of view on how you use it, if you are going to use it, and especially protect the access to that feature. That's something I do in every single customer tenant I set up or work with. I always limit who are able to track those devices. So ensure to do that even for Windows 10. Uh, we have also have an extensive update to reporting and then a lot of small bits and pieces fixes uh, and also some new things for all the platforms, of course. But I would like to especially point out the tracking uh, of Windows 10 devices and that you need to lock that down. And then just review the release notes because there are a ton of nice new small bits and pieces in this release, including three new uh, protected apps, speaking about data protection and compliance. Cool. Yeah. And uh, apparently Microsoft is doing good things because they just released their quarterly report of their earnings. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, someone likes Microsoft because they increased uh, their revenue for Q for third quarter by 19% year over year, up to $41.7 billion. And basically everything have excelled. But I know that we have had long discussions on should we really talk about these earnings reports? Who does it interest and what does it say? But I find it quite interesting to see what's been increasing and how COVID have affected that. So what we can see, and, and all of this to me sounds quite reasonable. Office is up all over. LinkedIn is up because I think people are more active. People are using it. People are getting new jobs or, or whatnot there. Uh, Xbox is up 34%. <laughs> which must have something to do with that. Uh, search and advertising, uh, as well as Surface. So everything is going better. Like Surface is up 12% Q3. So I think there are some really interesting parts of these numbers, but for sure, the most important aspect is that 
a lot of organizations are turning to Microsoft to get help, but also a lot of consumers are using more and more Microsoft services. And that, to me, says something about the world we're living in today. For cloud services in general, I assume that it's the same. I know that Apple did a huge quarter as well, and I'm expecting the same from both Google and Amazon and other cloud vendors. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds reasonable. And I'm, I'd be interesting to find someone who has not had a great quarter in this space. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see what we can find in, in a future episode. So as always, we're kind of running out of time. We're good at that. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, so do you remember when we decided that we were going to do 45 minutes instead? And yep. both of us were, well, I hope we have enough content. That was not an issue. <laughs> I'm kind of scared for the day when we look at each other and go, dude, we need 60 minutes. In two years, we're going to have like four hours and that is not going to be a good thing. It's like Windows Weekly that can run for two, two and a half hours. I was about but to I say two and, two and a half days, but yes. <laughs> no, uh, we, we need to keep our rambling down to a minimum, just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am going to do um, some speaking on the 15th. I'm doing both Data Saturday Southwest uh, in, in the US and Data Weekender 3.1 as well. And on the 17th to through the 19th of May, that's Techorama Spring Edition. So I'm going to be speaking on the 18th. So that's what's on my docket. Are you going to do some speaking or are you actually working for a change? Yeah, I, I, I've. it was a very long time ago I worked this hard. Uh, today I had meetings from 8 until 5 without any break. Lunch? Including lunch. No nope. lunch? I had I had a meeting while making and eating my lunch. Oh, that is not great. And I had the same experience yesterday, and I will have the same experience tomorrow. It's been a very hectic period, and the reasons for that will be revealed in upcoming episodes as well. And and you know, next episode is actually one hundred and fifty. I know very well the next episode is 150 on the number, and I have something planned for you. Oh, interesting. And we also have a couple of interviews lined up. Yep. Which will be great fun. So uh, as a listener, you can expect more content from Needy in Tech moving forward. Definitely. So we, we teased when I did the interview with Haney that we are going to do more interviews. Now we're going to put our money where our mouth is and actually get to do more interviews Mm -hmm. i think that's on us i think so but things happened in in the middle of that as well yes it did and on that bombshell i think it is time to end the show so thank you so much for listening and we'll be back in roughly two weeks have a good one bye bye thank you for listening to this episode Knee Deep in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Abitzon and Simon Binder. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at kneedeepintech.com.